So hello, I'm Michael Shoebridge, the Director of Strategic Analysis Australia, and I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Marcus Hellyer, the Head of Research. Marcus, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Great so, to be here as always. So welcome to episode six of the Grumpy Strategist. My, how time flies. Today, we've got a lot to cover because the peak transparency exercise between the Australian Defence Organisation and the Australian Parliament happened last week. Hearings called Senate Estimates Hearings. That's where the most senior defence officials turn up and have to answer questions from Australian senators in the parliament and everything they say goes on the hands hard record. So today we thought we'd focus on that and there's a lot in there Marcus we'll talk about leadership and organisation of the sprawling defence organisation, some of the recruitment and retention issues and some of the implications of that, some further revelations about the risks in the maritime capability space and maybe just end with some lessons out of estimates tied to Mr Albanese's trip to the US. So there's a lot to get through but thinking about that start what did estimates tell you about leadership and the defense organization i've written a piece about it but i'll let you start well i think we always learn a lot from estimates and when i was previously working at the australian strategic policy institute and now at, at saa estimates hearings are one of the prime sources of information for people who are interested in understanding what's going on in the defence space, because it's one of the very few accountability mechanisms, in my view, where the, the government and public servants and the ADF really actually have to answer direct questions put to them. And of course, it's a, a, one of the sort of blood sports in Canberra is watching how those people perform in estimates, you know, how well did they do? And did they actually manage to escape without giving any information away? Actually, I want to see information, but too often estimates becomes this exercise in officials trying not to give anything away. They don't want to get well, ahead of the government. They don't want to say anything that could get them in trouble with the government. And so we don't really get what we should get. But nevertheless, there are all Always some really good pieces of information there. Mm. And I think this time round, yeah, there was some really good information about defence people, particularly senior leadership people or numbers and also recruitment and retention issues. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that we're seeing is this increasing number of chiefs and decreasing number of Indians, that the whole thing is getting increasingly out of whack. And in your recent piece, you sort of said that there's defence is kind of overled but over managed, over managed and under led. There's there's more and more leaders, but less and less leadership. So, mm. what were you getting at in that piece? Well, I was looking at the list of defence officials that turned up at the Parliament, and I got rank snow blindness. There were so many senior people, defence civilians and military people. You know, deputy secretary, this first secretary, that associate secretary, secretary. Uh, Lieutenant General, General, Major General, uh, Rear Admiral, Admiral, that I just air marshal. I, I was I went snowblind with the ranks, and then I thought to myself, I can't even understand this organisation and its structure. And I worked in it for a, about a quarter of a century. It has metastasized at the top level, so it is so complex that I doubt the Secretary and CDF can understand it. And nobody that works in the place can understand it. So the point I made in my article was 
Defence is now so complex, particularly in its top structure and all those weird interrelationships between these senior roles, that it can't understand itself, let alone understand what's happening outside it, whether it's in local industry or overseas or with technology. And if it can't understand what's happening in the external world because it's so busy trying to understand itself, that's a failing model. Mm. Well, I uh, actually went to the annual report, which also came out recently, and guess guess how many band three civilians and three-star military people there are now in the Department of well, Defence? So band three is the most senior level position unless you're the head of the organisation, just for those that don't mm-hmm. know. And it, the employment package is rather attractive. Mm-hmm. You know, it's... Three hundred, four hundred thousand. Pick a number, Michael. I'm going to say twenty. Well, there's twenty combined between the ADF, three-star officers, and the public servant, deputy secretary level. So there's twenty. So traditionally, a three-star officer was a service chief, but we now have eleven of them for three services. And then if we go one step down below that to the two-star officers, so major general equivalent, there's 51. We nearly have one two-star officer for every thousand members of the Defence Force. That's how much the rank structure has proliferated. And if we go back only a few years to the first principles review... 2017. That was meant to be the review to end all reviews. One of its biggest points was this problem of the proliferation of senior people and it wanted to simplify, it wanted to strip the organisation back. And yet, like so many things in defence, we've actually gone in the opposite direction. Well, yeah, defence reminds me of... Remember those big old American cars in the, what, 60s, 50s and 60s and Cadillacs and things, and they had massive hood ornaments and chrome and wing mirrors all over them. Defence in Australia is like a little tiny Honda Jazz with enormous chrome fixings and finishings and hood ornaments. It's the, the senior level structure is sitting on top of a diminishing organisation. And I think this gets us into the recruitment and retention issue. But I will say that I think a root cause for people not wanting to join the military and then leaving in mid-career is the disempowerment that comes from this metastasizing of the senior structure and all these lieutenant generals, air marshals and rear admirals because everybody else has their decision-making space taken away from them by the proliferation of these highly paid, highly ranked people. And there's nothing so demotivating as when you're a person who's invested in your professional career to have no decision-making space. Well, a former colleague said to me, that, um, you know, I said, why, why is it that whenever there's a problem in defence, the solution seems to be we'll create a new three-star position? So whether it's guided weapons, whether it's personnel, we're somehow going to solve the problem by creating a, a new three-star position. And, and this person, a former senior officer, said, well, the problem is, is if you're a two-star at the table in defence, no one listens to you. You can't get heard. So the solution, instead of re-empowering your two-star people, is we're going to cram even more three-star people around the table to crowd out the voices from the two-stars. A one-star can't get heard <laughs> anymore. So well, and, it's, and just it's this you know, sort for, of the, for the non, vicious cycle for the non-public service listener, <clears throat> a one-star is a member of what is called the senior executive service. 
or the star ranks in the military. They are meant to be senior leaders, but they're not that anymore. I, I looked back at the time of Tang, and he's crunching five Tang would be. departments. Who is in, Tang? Sir Arthur Tang, he was the, the architect of a single defence organisation. So back in the mid-70s, he was instructed by the then government to simplify five separate departments, one for the Navy, Army, Air Force, a small defence department and a department of supply that ran factories and dockyards, into one defence organisation. And he did that. But his idea of a senior officer to run procurement was a band two, a first assistant secretary. That was his idea of a senior officer back then. And now that rank level seems not fit to carry the photocopied briefing packs into Senate estimates. Mm. It's, it is a root problem with motivating people to work in the place, to join and to stay, which brings us right to the problem of growth the ADF is meant to be growing. It's meant to have been growing since 2016. Well, certainly the number of, ch- of chiefs is growing, but the number of Indians, unfortunately, is going backwards. So another very interesting revelation out of estimates hearings last week was that, unfortunately, the number of personnel in the ADF has gone back considerably even since the budget came out in uh, May of this year. So it's gone backwards by another 1,500. So what does that mean? Well, it means that so the ADF is meant to be on a growth trajectory. So out of the 2016 white paper and the 2020 defence strategic update and the, the DSR this year, it's meant to be growing by close to 20,000 people. And yet it hasn't grown at all since the white paper in actual numbers. In fact, at budget time, the numbers indicated had essentially gone nowhere in those seven years. What we learned from estimates last week is now it's gone actually backwards. So we're actually have less people than we had seven years ago, despite those ambitious growth targets. And at this point in time, the ADF is about 5,500 short of where it's meant to be. That's nearly 10%. So there's a 10% shortfall of actual bodies against the target. If I can bring it back to the, and there are too many top-level leaders in too complex an organisational structure, the answer that the defence organisation got Richard Miles to agree to is to appoint a new Band 3 military position, star rank position, the Chief of Personnel, who now reports directly to the Chief of the Defence Force. So again... The answer to the problem is to create yet another senior position with a pyramid of people that will have to work for that senior position to solve a problem that really is a core one for the service chiefs and the CDF. So I, to me, the, the the question now really is we can't grow. We've had over seven years to grow, a time of unconstrained funding really for defence. Defence has had as much money as it needs to throw at this problem. it's had variable economic times, so good times and bad times. Hasn't really grown. The Australian population has actually grown, you know, so there are more and more Australians and yet the percentage of Australians who are in the ADF is continuing to shrink. And so 
the question is, what do you actually do about that? Do you simply keep wishing, hoping that somehow you can turn this around? Well, the evidence seems to be we can't. Maybe if a war starts, patriotic young Australians will join up. But in peacetime, that doesn't seem to be what they want to do. So do we then actually accept that and draw the consequences? And the consequences could either be you you design an ADF for that smaller number of people or you go well actually it doesn't matter that much because when a war starts we're going to move to this a, a new phase and we'll mobilize and so you don't actually need all of those peacetime people because a lot of our stuff will be sitting in, on the shelf or in be in a hangar yeah. or tied up on wharf so if we, we only we're only going to operate half of our stuff and when the war starts that's when we'll recruit people the problem is it takes a long time to train all of those people so you simply can't switch on another hundred fighter pilots or another three submarine crews isn't the problem that they are the two choices? You accept a smaller force and you structure accordingly. So you probably, that means you cut the force structure. You don't have as many ships, submarines, aircraft, armored vehicles. You deliberately shrink the force. But then your force, the force we have already, if it was fully populated with these recruiting targets, cannot sustain combat losses. So that plan of a, an even smaller force is just to say, We'll stay in peacetime forever. That's our plan. Even if defence was hitting these people growth targets rather than comprehensively failing, the force that results cannot sustain itself in war because there is no way to replace the aircraft, the ships, and particularly the people with the training model that defence has. So it takes years to grow a single F-35 pilot or the principal warfare officer Once you lose them, even if you could get a new ship or aircraft, there's nobody to fly or operate it. So it is not a viable force for credible conflict. Well, let let me give you a little anecdote from my past, but everything's about me, Michael. So just sit there and listen to me tell a a long, boring story about myself. When I first came to Defence, and it was around about 2006 and worked in the capability space and lots of business cases for capability acquisitions came over my desk and I had to analyze them. And one thing that really surprised me and I suspect would surprise a lot of people out there is that the basis of provisioning in these proposals, i.e. how much stuff we were going to buy, was set by peacetime usage. So we would buy exactly the right number of fighter planes for three or four squadrons or the right number of missiles so each of those planes had one loadout. Or whatever the equipment was, it was peacetime usage. And my first question is, well, but when the war starts, A, we're going to fire all this stuff off, and B, we're going to take losses. So don't we actually need war stocks? Don't, don't we yeah. need to over-provision? But that was not the model. So essentially, that exquisitely designed force will be overtaken by events about half an hour into the next war. And so that is not how the the ADF is designed. And so we don't buy extra stuff, yet we don't all really plan for mobilization. So all of the stuff we're buying is so exquisite, it takes so long to design and build that when the war starts, you're not going to be able to build any more of it. And so where we've ended up with is we've got this rather small, exquisitely designed force that we can't actually crew, but we don't actually have any capacity to expand rapidly in wartime. So it's sort of 
neither nor one nor the other. One nor the other. Well, with faced with that problem, if you can't get enough people into your permanent military to even crude the systems and support the systems that you're buying. And war is credible. And war is credible. It's in the government's own documentation, the strategic review. You have to shift your model. You can maybe bring the small, the cheap and the many in, things that don't need so many people to operate and that you can lose rather than losing people and an F-35. But the other thing is to return to that concept of what's the permanent ADF's job in peacetime? It's to prepare themselves to be able to train and equip a whole lot of new people that aren't going to get 15 years training when conflict comes. But that's that's a fundamentally different way of thinking about our military. They're like John the Baptist, preparing for a greater force that comes after. But they don't see their job as helping be able to expand and mobilise a bigger military during war. They think they're too expert and cannot be replaced And when they get lost in combat, there's no plan. Well, I think that's yet another example of our entire experience since World War II has been about peacetime, in a sense. And anything that exceeded the capacity of the peacetime forces, well, that's why we're in the alliance. So we're going to bubble along a 2% of GDP, relatively small force. That will handle any kind of expected contingencies. And if there's anything bigger, well, the US will take care of it and we'll just plug in a small contribution. Of course, we've now reached a different kind of period where we have grave doubts about the US's capacity, but we haven't really thought, how do we actually make up that capacity? capacity ourselves. And I think maybe now we move on to the next outcome of estimates, which is some more uh, not very exciting or not very encouraging news about maritime capability, because I think it illustrates this, this point of we have this exquisite, relatively small force with no capacity to grow And we're moving into a a period where I think bad things could happen and we're not ready for it. Yes, well, that came out to me with certainly with the helicopter testimony, but also with the maritime capabilities. So there was quite a bit of testimony around the Collins class submarines and the life extension program and the upgrade. And it turns out that defence hasn't been meeting the two-year schedule for full cycle dockings. And it was meant to pack even more into that suitcase with the life extension program. But defence officials have been cleared despite themselves in saying this won't fit in to a two-year schedule. And in fact, each submarine is so different because of its different history that they can't even say how long each will take. Well, the concerning thing for me is that we're starting this long transition in submarine capability. Previously, it was from Collins to attack. That's out the window. It's now Collins to SSNs. But the, the risk mitigated there of, you know, should it take longer than planned is we've got the Collins life of type extension. Essentially, that will be a big full cycle docking, a big overhaul with new engines, new main motors, new electrical distribution systems and a whole bunch of other stuff that would give each of those Collins class submarines another 10 years of life. As we've gone through time, we've gone from maybe one or two Collins needing a life of type extension to get the fleet through to now all six of them have to do it. Yes, I was sort of struck by this re-engineering of history that where the officials, people like the Chief of Navy, made it sound like, oh, it was always the plan, we're always going to do six. But there's reams of testimony at earlier Senate estimate hearings where they're not at all clear that it had to be done to all six And you got the impression that, 
Well, because it's so expensive and complicated, they would do as few as possible. And now the the revised history of the Collins upgrade is they were always all going to have to be mm, done. Yes. So the number has increased. But the basic point is, is in this high risk transition, our, our major strategic risk mitigator for schedule and capability was the Collins life of type extension. But we've now played that card. That is now baked into that transition plan. So if anything happens to that, we could well have a capability gap. Mm. And what we learned from estimates is it's looking like that will that life of type extension will take more than two years per, per boat. boat. We know that if it blows out, you'll have fewer boats available and essentially will have a, a decline in capability. A number of us have been saying this for quite some time, saying there's no way you can really cram that much work into that two-year window. Finally, Defence is admitting that, yes, it's, it's pretty much likely that it won't fit. But it's not yet admitting the consequences because... The Chief of Navy was saying, oh, don't you worry, we'll still meet high levels of availability. In fact, we've transitioned before from the Oberon to the Collins. Well, that's true, but it was a terrible transition, as I remember. There were almost yeah, no submarines available. That is not a good available. model. That is a terrible precedent. I would not be referring back to the, the Oberon to Collins as a good capability transition. That should not be the model. So aside from the life of type extension, I think we are already starting to see signs that very hard to predict aging capabilities. The helicopter transition, I think you'd have to say was a total fiasco because we now have no capability whatsoever. But when we look at Collins, it's an aging system. There's been fires on those boats. I think we are one serious accident away from not having any submarine capability whatsoever. It was a serious accident on one of them, despite the fact that you might say, well, Farncom has travelled the most miles and it's had two fires before, so it's a special case. No seaworthy authority could sign off on putting more to sea until the problems were solved. So it'd have a domino effect across all six. Mm. And it, that, that looks credible to me. And, and unfortunately, as you say, there is no now no plan B until we, the orca submarine We've played our get-out-of-jail card already. And the, the other not very nice piece of news around uh, maritime capability actually was announced just before estimates, and that the government said that it had put the Arafura-class offshore patrol vessel on the Projects of Concern list. So for listeners, the Project of Concern list is kind of a naughty corner that projects get sent to when they are seriously missing schedule or have serious technical risks or serious budget risks. They're sent to the naughty corner. Ooh, so It's the kitty in the classroom. It's not just that they haven't turned their homework in a couple of times. They've hit another child or thrown a chair. That's kind of that level to get on the project. There's of generally concern. very few projects on the project of concern list, Michael. Yes, it's not a standard thing. Now, what I will say is generally projects do come off the project of concern list, though in some cases the problems are essentially terminal and the project is cancelled. Because there's so little transparency and accountability in this space, unfortunately, we don't really know why the Arafura. OPV was put on the naughty list, but it's not a good sign, particularly when of the three planks of the naval shipbuilding enterprise, so submarines, major service combatants, and minor war vessels, this was the only one that was actually building ships. You know, there there are six ships under construction, two, I believe, uh, in the water, but there were already signs that it was not going well because a couple of boats were meant to have been handed over to defence by now. That hasn't occurred, so there's something clearly going on there. But I have to say it is a little depressing when the only 
one of those three classes that's actually hit construction is is now on the project is of trouble. concern list. And it's simpler than it could have been, isn't it, as a vessel? Because the missiles that were on the original design and the helicopter were taken off before Australia embarked on the program. And then it was further simplified the, by getting a smaller gun that was going to be taken off the Armadales and bolted mm-hmm. on the OPVs. So it's lost its big gun. Didn't it lose something else recently? Oh, well, the government announced that the UAV program, so the the drone that was going to go onto it, that program has been cancelled. Insiders say it's because of the well-known budget pressures that we've talked about post the Defence Strategic Review. So we've now got an 1,800-tonne ship that essentially doesn't have missiles, doesn't have a helicopter, has a very, very small gun, and it has no UAV. And on top of that there's a problem with the ship itself, which is why it's on the project of concern list. It should list. probably be renamed not the offshore patrol vessel, but the empty patrol vessel. <laughs> Well, who knows, but it does not bode well for the massive, massive undertaking of SSNs, I have to say. So we'll finish up with some lessons out of estimates. One to me was it's meant to be about accountability. So this is meant to be the Parliament's moment to hold officials to account. But the unfortunate thing about the two major party approach is the coalition politicians ask questions of defence that are critical of performance and the governing ALP answers by saying well it's all the coalition's fault for when they were in power and the coalition points fingers at the ALP saying what's your fault because you're in power now and it's like mum and dad are fighting and the kitty who's the one that's actually set fire to the dining table gets away scot-free. The problem here is the performance of the defence organisation and its top leadership but At estimates, you only see this kind of accountability on the officials from people that aren't in the coalition or the Labor Party. Well, I find estimates frustrating, partly where we are now, relatively close to the last election. So everything going on in defence at the moment pretty much has the fingerprints of both the Liberal Party and the Labor Party on it. So things, you know, moving through the process were started under the previous government. So they don't want to be too critical of it because it was their original decision in the first place, such as the kind of dumpster fire of our naval shipbuilding enterprise. On defence advice, though, all these decisions are on what's meant to be the best advice from the most professional people in the country. They don't want to ask hard questions because it reflects badly on them. The ALP government now owns all of this stuff so they don't want to ask hard questions because it reflects badly on them so the only people asking hard questions are actually the crossbenchers so people like senator lambie and that shoebridge guy my brother senator shoebridge is he your brother disclose that so so in the last parliament rex patrick another independent was asking lots of hard questions he's no longer in in parliament so we've lost that very inquisitive voice but i always remember that rex patrick who essentially was elected as the the senator for building submarines in south australia was the only person asking hard questions about the submarine program and back then it was still the attack class program which was looking like it was going to cost 80 to 90 million dollars he was the only person saying can australia actually afford this Mm. is this a 
a good investment of defence dollars. Now we don't have a lot of people asking those hard questions, well, unfortunately. And this, this brings me probably to what we'll finish on, this point about the Albanese trip to Washington. So he goes to Washington and one of the centrepieces of his trip is about ensuring support for AUKUS uh, with a dysfunctional Congress and meetings with the Biden administration, legislation in the Congress about transferring submarines to Australia in the future, legislation in the Congress for putting more money into an underperforming US submarine production system. And the story we get told is everyone's very supportive. They love AUKUS. They love us Australians. And there's a bit of dysfunction in the US system, but everything will be fine. And as he flies out, an organisation called the US Congressional Budget Office puts out a 40-page report on the funding and risks in the entire US Navy plan for surface ships and submarines with details around three alternatives of fleet numbers, ship types for both surface ships and submarines. And it says the whole thing is chronically unaffordable. The US government will have to invest between 31 and 40% extra every year over the next 30 years to achieve any of the US Navy's plans for submarines or surface ships. To me, that's the bigger risk to AUKUS, that the US Navy itself has unaffordable plans. And then on top of that is our defence organisation has its own unaffordable plans. But a lesson to me, contrasting with estimates here in our parliament, is where is the information base about the future of the Australian Navy surface and submarine fleet to the level that the US Navy's handed over to the US Congressional Budget Office? And where is the 40-page independent analysis at the level of detail we saw out of the US? Because if the Americans can do it when they've got hundreds of ships in their Navy, we should be able to do it when we've got a tiny number of ships. Well, we should be able to do it, but we don't. So if you work in this space as an analyst, even inside the Australian Department of Defence, the first place you go to to find information of relevance to Australian programs is the US, whether it's the US budget documents, whether it's their accountability organisations such as the Congressional Budget Office or the Congressional Research Service, because there is real information there. One fundamental reason for that is the US Congress has passed legislation mandating that this information is disclosed. So that naval shipbuilding report you refer to, that is a result of an act of Congress saying that every year the US Navy has to publish its shipbuilding plans. So those accountability organisations have actually got some raw material to work with. Here, we have nothing of that kind. The government refuses to release investment programs, whether we call it the force structure plan, the defence capability plan, the integrated investment plan, whatever you want to call it, the government will not release it and defence certainly will not release it off its own bat. So it is it is absolutely night and day. Mm. And again, it gets back to that issue we were talking about before of neither party really wants true transparency. Well, the problem with not having the information base out of defence and not having an independent analysis for the parliament is the informed decision-making in the parliament on defence is low and the result is an underperforming defence organisation and military. The fundamental way that a democracy works is by transparency and openness, particularly in the parliament. The US shows how that can be done. And while there's all that dysfunction in Congress the information base to allow good decisions is there. That's something that's in Australia's hands to solve. 
And I think it's critical that we do that. Well, I could not have put that case better myself, Michael. So maybe we'll we'll leave it there. Well, but I think we'll come back to this transparency thing. And we didn't have time because there was a horrible shadow puppetry dance around special purpose aircraft and revealing patterns of life, which was all about lack of transparency, increasing lack of transparency. So I'd love to come back to that in a future program. Marcus, great to talk with you. Thank you, Michael.